And joining me now is Matt Smith. He's the co-founder and CEO of Fortify Rights, a human rights organization. His group began work uh, on these issues in Myanmar nearly a decade ago, and it's since expanded to other parts of Southeast Asia. And he joins me now. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Matt. Thank you, Ben. It's really great to be here with you. So so listeners understand who the Rohingya are. Um, who are they and, and why have they all long been a target for persecution in uh, Burma and now Myanmar? Well, the, the Rohingya are an ethnic and religious minority indigenous to Western Myanmar, uh, a place called Rakhine State, also known as Arakan State. And, uh, you know, Myanmar is an incredibly diverse place. Um, and uh, part of the reason why this community in particular has been uh, targeted for extinction, really, uh, by the Myanmar military has a lot to do with um, the Myanmar military's history of impunity, its propensity to essentially create uh, sh- what, what they hope will be shared enemies um, for political purposes. And so the Rohingya, for many, many years, have, have been their target. Uh, when the Myanmar military wants to shore up political support. In the past, it has created situations that um, have false flag situations or other situations that have resulted in the military cracking down on the Rohingya, attempting to persuade you know the whole country to believe that this sm- relatively small group of persecuted people somehow pose an existential threat to the whole country. And so this has really been the dynamic for many decades, unfortunately. A familiar story in many parts of the world, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, five years ago, this was took on a whole different uh, amplitude. Uh, what happened? Well, it started in early October. Um, and again, Myanmar is a country that has a number, uh, not only a number of ethnic groups, but a number of non-state ethnic armies that for many years have been at war with the Myanmar military. On October 9th, 2016, a, a new armed group appeared, an uh, ethnic Rohingya armed group calling itself the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. At the time, they were calling themselves something different. Uh, but they essentially attacked the police. They killed nine police officers uh, using relatively rudiment, rudimentary uh, weapons and, you know, gardening equipment, knives and things of that nature. The Myanmar military responded with uh, highly disproportionate force. And so that was the first wave in October. Uh, the military, you know, massacred civilians, burned villages down in a certain area of northern Rakhine State where the Rohingya are indigenous. And then fast forwarding to October, or I'm sorry, August 25th, 2017. So about just about five years ago, just this past August, this armed group attacked again. And the Myanmar military uh, had been preparing for many, many months to uh, essentially destroy the Rohingya civilian population. And once this attack happened, they activated their forces and proceeded to burn to the ground several hundred villages. Um, they forced about more than 700,000 Rohingya civilians to flee across the border into Bangladesh. Uh, and I was there at the time. I was on the border, uh, the border area between Myanmar and Bangladesh, documenting a lot of these crimes with our team at Fortify Rights. And you know, we were documenting the most horrific. Uh, 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 genocidal acts, uh, you know, soldiers throwing infant children into fires, um, mass gang rape of, of women and girls, situations in which they were just targeting civilians who were fleeing uh, and, and, and committing uh, unthinkable atrocities. And so this essentially uh, is, is what prompted um, a lot of the analysis of, of the crime of genocide. But unfortunately for the Rohingya population, and no one knows this better than the Rohingya, but 
they've been facing genocide for for many decades. Actually, uh, five years ago, around this time, was really just the 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 uh, probably the largest and most coordinated attack against them. But it certainly was not the first. I remember those images of of thousands thousands of Rohingya in the water trying to get across that border into Bangladesh, and and just the and the stories that were being shared. If we fast forward five years later. Uh, many of those 750,000 uh, are still there. They're still in Bangladesh. Why has there been so little movement uh, to be able to try to bring them back? Well, a big a big part of that uh, has to do with the, the the Myanmar military. And you know, in, in February first, two thousand twenty one, the military uh, launched a, a coup d'état and and overthrew uh, you know imprisoned uh, a Myanmar leadership started to imprison uh, human rights defenders, activists, artists, uh, you name it, people from all sectors of society. And so right now, the political context in Myanmar is such that the entire country is is now engulfed in um, uh, in a revolution. Uh, and, and the people of Myanmar are fighting for their survival. They're fighting for democracy and, and, and human rights. And, uh, and so right now, the conditions for ethnic Rohingya uh, refugees to return to their homeland uh, are really not in place. They wouldn't be able to do that safely. They wouldn't be able to do it, um, it you know, in a way that would be uh, protected from the, the military's uh, atrocity crimes. We did do a project uh, a few years ago. It was a it was a participatory project led by Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. And one of the survey questions that um, they collected information on had to do with the extent to which Rohingya refugees wanted to return to their homeland. Uh, and, and the numbers were, were quite high. Uh, I believe it was somewhere in the ballpark of 97% of the Rohingya population in the camps in Bangladesh hoped to return to their homeland at one point. Uh, unfortunately, uh, given the military's um, attacks on the, on, the, on the country nationwide, uh, any hopes of returning now are, are very thin. And understand even where they were, where the villages were burnt, where they were driven out of, um, there's been rebuilding going on. There's essentially been new settlements being built. They are, their land is being now lived on by others. That's right, Ben. And this has been a, this has been a, a, a trend among the Myanmar military for some time in terms of forcibly displacing, or in the case of the Rohingya, attempting to destroy a population and then basically, you know, uh, paving over their, their homeland, so to speak. Um, and, you know, uh, this is a this is a, a Muslim minority. And so uh, the Myanmar military sees it in, in some respects as its duty to bring Buddhism to places where ethnic and religious minorities um, are indigenous. And they've been doing this process of, of what's referred to as Burmanization. Um, they've been carrying that out for many, many years throughout the country, whether it's in ethnic Kachin areas or Chin areas. I was recently in Chin state in, in, in Myanmar and, and similar types of trends are happening there now. Um, and so that is definitely a part of the Rohingya genocide. They moved in quite quickly to, um, to not only conceal and hide or destroy evidence, but now uh, to also uh, bulldoze and, and build over where Rohingya once called home. I'm speaking with Matt Smith. He's co-founder and CEO of Fortify Rights. Uh, the human rights group has worked in Myanmar for uh, nearly a decade now. Um, we're talking about the fifth anniversary of uh, of the Rohingya, a so-called 
by Myanmar, a clearance operation, which is as evil sounding as you can get, uh, but essentially an attempt to eliminate the Rohingya from that country in many ways, driving them into neighboring Bangladesh, uh, 750,000 in that short period alone, but now a million overall over the years, many of them, most of them still there, uh, still waiting to try to come back, the situation not conducive at all to allowing them to come back. When we return, we'll talk a bit more about why, uh, you know, although there's been a lot of uh, stern words from the international community, why the government of Myanmar, the, now the military government of Myanmar again, has been so resistant or so uh, able to weather these sorts of criticisms and not do anything about it. I'm with Matt Smith. He's co-founder and CEO of Fortify Rights. We're talking about the fifth anniversary of what was remembered as, as a mass uh, exodus of Rohingya uh, under attack, running for their lives, really fleeing for their lives into neighboring Bangladesh uh, after attacks by the Myanmar military on them uh, to drive them out of the country, essentially. Many of them, most of them still remain in neighboring Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh would like to see them return to their home. The international community would like to see them go back. Myanmar has made uh, certain gestures over the years saying that they would be, uh, quote unquote, perhaps welcome, uh, a deal with the Chinese, I believe, Matt, at one point. Uh, but so far, the government of Myanmar seems to be resistant to a lot of international pressure to try to make this right. Why is that? I mean, we've, you know, there's a case in front of the International Court of Justice that was brought by the Gambia. Uh, there's been all sorts of attempts to try to pressure Myanmar into doing something about this, and yet nothing. Well, I, I think one one very uh, important uh, shift that has occurred for the Rohingya people since the coup uh, last year is that elected officials in Myanmar, the National Unity Government of Myanmar, which is, uh, in our view, the, um, the the actual government of Myanmar, not the military junta. These are the officials that were essentially deposed by the junta, hunted by the junta for um, for supporting democracy and human rights. And they've formed what they're calling the National Unity Government. And um, Soon after the coup, uh, the many people throughout Myanmar came to realize that the Rohingya were telling the truth for many years because the government had worked and the military had worked diligently to essentially brainwash the national population into believing that the Rohingya didn't exist, you know, calling them liars. All these allegations of atrocities were false, they said. Uh, and, and that brainwashing had tremendous effect over the years. But shortly after the coup, when the military started to attack villages that and cities and towns that hadn't previously seen armed conflict, a lot of people in Myanmar came to realize, wait a minute, uh, what the Rohingya were saying was actually accurate. And so what we've seen is this incredible uh, shift. It's really been a sea change in the way in which the people of Myanmar think think about the Rohingya population. They've, they've come to broadly, more broadly accept them. Myanmar's political leaders, uh, who are at present, uh, you know, fighting against this military dictatorship, uh, uh, they've come to issue a policy uh, committing itself to protecting the Rohingya population and ensuring justice for the Rohingya population. Now, the Myanmar military, of course, has not, as you mentioned, Ben, has been impervious to to pressure. Um, they are uh, representing. Myanmar at the International Court of Justice. And so we are hopeful that uh, that will bring about some measure of of justice for the Rohingya, for the Rohingya people, and at least acknowledging uh, that the genocide took place. There are other mechanisms in place, other investigations taking place. Um, and there are a number of things that governments can do as well. But but certainly right now, uh, the, the military is is not only impervious to, to pressure uh, uh, on the Rohingya situation, but just overall, more broadly about, you know, their attempt to seize power, their attempt to take over the entire country, the pressure that they're receiving from other countries. Um, they're, they're 
attempting to uh, uh, to push that aside. But again, there are a number of things governments could do. I think listeners may remember the criticism that uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner Anson Suu Kyi came under for uh, for her uh, her role in some ways earlier on before this coup uh, vis-a-vis the Rohingya and the story that the Rohingya were trying to tell as well. Uh, how big a role does China play in this? Because clearly the uh, the you know Myanmar's junta are getting their money from somewhere. They can be impervious for certain reasons. What role does China play in allowing them uh, that sort of uh, imperviousness? China's influence, political influence over the events in Myanmar over the years has been uh, uh, pernicious. Would 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 be the most diplomatic way to refer to it. Uh, this is this is a a regime in China that has essentially been providing weapons to the Myanmar military that the military is then in turn using to. Uh, attack and kill civilians throughout the entire country. Um, this is a, a government in China that is essentially protecting Myanmar at the UN Security Council, um, preventing any sort of um, any sort of meaningful action being taken at the at the Security Council level with its 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 ever present threat of a veto. They've essentially uh, um, scared off other other uh, uh, Security Council member states from from putting forward a resolution, um, and so whether it's you know political support, financial support, providing actual weapons in the form of material support, uh, uh, Beijing is firmly behind uh, the Myanmar military. And um, if there's if there's a single government, uh, I think that is that is uh, apart from the Myanmar military, you know, most responsible for. Uh, these brutal outcomes that we're seeing, it, it would certainly be China. And China certainly has um, uh, accusations of, of genocide and, and, and treatment of its own ethnic minorities that would no doubt uh, persuade it uh, to protect Myanmar in this situation as well, I would imagine. What now? I mean, will we see a 10-year anniversary, do you think, when 750,000 Rohingya are still stateless, living on the other side of that border with little opportunity to go home? Well, we certainly hope not, and we're working towards, uh, you know, more positive outcomes for the Rohingya. And, and you know, the Rohingya population itself is working uh, diligently. Some of the most inspiring human rights defenders I've ever worked with come from the Rohingya community. And we're looking for governments to essentially acknowledge the national unity government uh, as the as the uh, the government of Myanmar, and at the same time to uh, not acknowledge or, or provide any political legitimacy to the Myanmar junta. Uh, this is important for a number of reasons. If the junta in Myanmar experiences even a shred of political legitimacy, it will use that and and try to build on that. And and our fear is that Myanmar will be falling into one of these more entrenched periods of its history where military rule just seems to drag on and drag on. So uh, not acknowledging the junta as, you know, uh, it certainly is not the government of Myanmar. Uh, it wants to be, but it's not. And so uh, that's a big part of it. I think also right now doing everything we can to uh, get governments to coordinate their responses to these atrocious uh, atrocities in, in, in Myanmar. Matt Smith, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate it.